27 through 32. Uh, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you will lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We live in a time where the mantra is sex sells. It's all around us. The bounds of decency, of properness, of morality are being pushed farther and farther. Last week we looked and we considered anger. Instead of anger, instead of being angry, this anger which leads to murder, we are to be reconciled to our brother. Now Jesus does the same thing with adultery. He digs deep into the heart of the matter. Our commercials, our clothing styles may promote lust. Our public policies assume that everyone over the age of 16 is sexually active. We worry over the consequences of sexual immorality, of pregnancy, of STDs, of AIDS. However, we don't promote fidelity or abstinence. We promote safe sex and condom distribution. Last week, it was not hard. Everyone, in essence, could say, we agree murder is wrong. This world uh, agrees and affirms that murder is wrong. And today, some may even affirm that adultery is wrong. Yes, if you're married, you should not cheat. But the reality is that in churches, both big and small, even the largest of our churches, you're very unlikely to find a murderer. But it is not so unlikely to find someone who has either committed adultery or who has suffered from the results of it. As we look at this text, we see that adultery is primarily Jesus' concern here. It is one of the most grievous sexual sins. It betrays the promise of lifelong, exclusive loyalty. This is particularly true for Jesus' audience. You must remember that Jesus preached in a time where most men would be married by the age of 20. We live in a time where this is being pushed further and further back. But then they were married by the age of 20. So this made the leading sin adultery, not so much fornication. It was still there, but... Primarily, adultery was the sin. Today, we get ma married later, so the opposite force is true. 
Much more today, the problem is fornication. But even so, Jesus here not only forbids adultery, but he forbids the lust that leads to adultery. It is not just about adultery. It is about all sexual sins. Jesus come, comes to us and he dress, addresses our heart. He addresses the heart of adultery. So we will see three things. We'll see the birth of adultery. Second, we'll see the severity of adultery. And finally, we'll see the result of adultery. So let's begin by looking at the birth of adultery. Jesus comes here and he tells to us, it's all about your motives. One commentator says this, Jesus opposes the man who looks at a woman and wonders how he can cause her to desire him so that he may seduce her. He goes on to say that Jesus opposes the woman who lusts after that man or attempts to stir up lust in others. It's very easy for us to see this from one side, but wise women know that there's one thing to make themselves attractive. It's an entirely other thing to make yourself look seductive. Jesus here is for forbidding all sexual acts outside of marriage. It's true, we could say, that premarital sex is not compounded by the betrayal of a lifelong promise. But even so, it comes with its baggage. It is a sin against God. It is a sin against others. It is a sin against self. It comes with its own weightiness. Many have and will continue to argue that Jesus is being too strict here. They'll say that, yes, this law had its place. This is a time where Jesus is preaching where women have very little rights. If they're found pregnant outside of marriage, then the onus falls on them. Women were too dependent on men. So, yes, it was good for Jesus to preach this at this time. However, they would go on to say that those days have passed. We can solve the problem of children today. And today our women are so liberated that we don't, they don't need to rely on men. And so as we approach this sin, this particular sin, we begin to ask ourselves questions. We may first ask ourselves this. Can I get hurt? Perhaps maybe I catch a disease. Perhaps I may get pregnant. Perhaps my partner may get pregnant. Maybe there will be some guilt that comes from this. But even so, we persuade ourselves that it's worth it. Can I hurt others? What if I bring sorrow upon another? But still, the risk is worth it. Finally, we may ask, can this hurt our relationship? Will one or the other exploit the other? The reality is that in sexual intimacy, there is such an explosion of self-giving, such personal exposure, that few people can feel the same towards each other afterwards. One will yearn for commitment while the other feels trapped. When we 
for marriage. We are breaking down the fabric of creation. God demands exclusive loyalty. You will leave your father, you will leave your mother, you will cling to your spouse. We forget the promise of lifetime loyalty that a husband and wife are united to each other. We forget the bodily loyalty that the two have become one flesh. By its nature, Physical love is a unifying act. The, the, the misnomer, or excuse me, casual sex, the notion of casual sex is a misnomer. It is not merely bodily function. You cannot go to bed with someone and you leave your soul parked outside. But we've convinced ourselves this is not true. We've convinced that our soul is not in the act. We forget that intimacy is a sign and seal of the union of two lives. Sex outside marriage clashes with the intent of marriage, with the intent of what God has for us. Jesus tells us here that it becomes an issue of lust. Jesus warns us of the lust of the eye. In essence, the lust of the eye is the lust of the heart. Men, we know, are certainly oriented this way. But our society is increasingly teaching women to be this way as well. But it is important for us to understand what Jesus forbids. It, it is not a sin to notice beauty. It is okay to say this person is beautiful. It is a quite another thing to let our mind roam free. It, it is good to dress attractively. It is another thing to dress seductively. When I worked for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship in Clemson, South Carolina, this is one of the most regular conversations that was going on between our female interns and our girls. There's a difference between being attractive and being seductive. A, a social critic, David Brooks, in 2002 said this. This is not a, a Christian uh, a critic. This is just a social critic. He said this. The average square yard of boys' fashion grows and grows, while the square inches in the girls' outfits shrink and shrink, so that while boys look like tent-wearing skateboarders, the girls look like preppy prostitutes. And this is true. As boys get longer and longer and baggier and baggier, girls have less and less clothes. The clothing industry rarely promotes modesty. And yet Jesus comes to this. And he teaches us that adultery begins in the heart. The heart moves the eyes. The eyes inflame the heart. Adultery does not just happen. It always begins in the heart. It, it, it's temptation taking on life. It 
is not sinful to be tempted. We know Jesus was tempted. But he refused to taste that sin with his mind. We must at all times control what we do with our thoughts when they enter our mind. Martin Luther says this, You cannot stop birds from flying overhead, but you can keep them from building nests in your hair. And this is very true that you cannot keep thoughts from coming, but you can deal with them as they're there. We, cannot refuse, we can refuse to let impure thoughts in and taking root in our mind. And yet, even in all of this, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you that sex is good. Sexual desire is right and proper. But it must always be put in its right context. And this context, Jesus tells us, is marriage. God blesses us when we use his gifts, but when we use his gifts in the right way. Lust is the heart of adultery. And Jesus has some severe words for this. This is our second point, the severity of adultery. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. This is a very <laughs> severe action. Jesus is calling us to take drastic action to keep from lusting. He calls us, it could be said, to gouge out our own eye. He goes on to cut off your own hand to keep you from sinning. Now is Jesus literally calling us to do these things? No. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. This is where you exaggerate to make a point. No one in church history endorses doing this. And, and even more than that, we know that a one-eyed man can still sin, can still lust. We know that a no-eyed man can still lust and sin in his mind. Jesus is telling us, though, that it is better for you to lose one of your members. It is better for you to lose your eye, to lose your hand, to suffer bodily pain than to experience spiritual pain for eternity. When you think of losing an eye or losing a hand or losing one of your members, you should shudder at this. And Jesus is saying to us, the same way you shudder at that, you should shudder at sin. In essence, he's saying you are to strive to act as if you have one eye, to strive to act as if you have no eyes. You should refuse to look at at things that would tempt you. By refusing to look, by refusing to walk towards, by refusing to reach out and take, we refuse sin. And this is something that is very applicable to us today. The pornography industry is a billion dollar industry. It degrades women, it teaches women to degrade themselves. were not enough. You can scarcely turn on the television or movies without having images bombarded at you. And Jesus says you are to strive 
to live as if you have no eyes. Keep yourself from books, from movies, from websites, from magazines that will lead to temptation. If self-control is hard for you, then tell someone and give them the right to keep you accountable. And if it keeps persisting, then seek help. He's saying cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, take drastic, severe measures to keep sin out from you. But we must know that the only way, the only way for us to resist lust, to resist sin, is to seek contentment. Contentment is the opposite of lust. The general command to be content means that we are content in our singleness. If we are single, we do not seek temporary partners. It means we're content in our marriage. We're content with our spouses. And again, our, our culture resists this. And all our entertainment. If you're not happy, move on. Every wife, every husband will have their failings. But we should not be discontent. We should not distrust God's providence. In being discontent, this is what we're doing. We're distrusting God's providence. And contentment breeds faithfulness. In the end, it's always an issue of the heart. Marital problems begin in the heart. The cause of lust is not attractive men or women. It's the improper response to attractive men and women. And the reality is that every one of us is flawed. We are all potential vow breakers. But we are called to seek, as, as David says in Psalm 51, a pure and clean heart in all things. And Jesus calls us here to take severe action. What sort of actions do we tend to take? combat sin? Are we willing to make drastic action? Or do we all have those things? I'll give up this, but this I will not give up. We are to take drastic actions. Are we willing to go to our brother or our sister and say, I am struggling with this sin and I need your help? ourselves. We must take drastic action. But finally, we see the result of adultery. If lust begins with the wandering eye, then divorce begins with the wandering mind. We live in a time where it is very, very easy to get a no-fault divorce. It is not so different than in Jesus' time. Starting with Moses, all a man had to do was give his wife a certificate. This could be for any reason. She cooked him bad food. He could give her a certificate and be done with it. And Jesus, in some ways, is saying this law may have had its purpose. It may have protected women. It gave them the right to remarry. It slowed men maybe down from thinking twice before they divorced. While it may have had its purpose, it is not how God designed it. <laughs> He says here, whoever divorces his wife, I'll let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is what the Old Testament said. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, 
except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There are times where divorce is right and proper. Here Jesus puts out sexual or adultery. He puts out sexual immorality. And later in Matthew, and we'll talk about it more then than we will now, he talks about desertion, about abandonment. I think we can even make good and right and proper applications from Scripture for physical abuse. But Jesus here takes a very hard line on divorce. We live in a time where the question has become, how long do I have to wait before it's no longer, or before it's respectable to get divorced? One month, two months, three months. People change marriages like they change shoes. Once every few years, maybe, they're looking for something more comfortable, for something new, for something more sparkly. But Jesus calls us to remember that grace should be at the heart of marriage, that a love for God should be at the heart of marriage. In essence, he says, yes, Moses gave you this law because you could not handle yourself. But this is not how God intended it to be. We have seen as we've studied Genesis, from very creation, God has created marriage to be emotional, physical, spiritual unity. loyalty that is to last the whole life. So as we come to our marriages, we know they are faulty. We know that both man and woman are sinners. But we come remembering that the grace of God is greater than our marriages. That the grace of God is the great healer of our marriages. God is patient and faithful even when we are not patient and faithful. God graciously forgives our sins and flaws, even when we don't forgive the sins and flaws in our spouses. And Jesus calls us to remember our vows. He calls us to show this grace that he shows us to our spouses. We are to seek the enemy of lust. We are to seek contentment. We are to seek contentment in our relationships. We are to seek contentment in the very will of God for our lives. Jesus has told us that adultery, it begins in the heart. And from the heart, it flows to our minds. And from our minds, it flows to our actions. He wants us to see how severe this sin is. That we are to cut it off from us, even as we would cut off our own limb. And yet far too often, we hold on to it as dearly as we hold on to our own limbs. We are to remember that divorce is not God's design for us. There will be time, yes, when divorce is necessary. But the necessary reasons are not the reasons that we often pursue it. 
in this Sermon on the Mount, as we will go through these things, I think at each end of each topic, we can ask ourselves this question. How will we live? Will we check this commandment off the list because we have not done the letter of the law? I have not committed adultery. I have not physically gone to another and committed adultery. Or will we understand why the law was given? We are to put all lust out from us, apart from us. But you may be saying to yourself now, this is all well and good, but this is so hard. How do we keep the eyes from wondering? Even if I would never physically commit the, the act, I commit it daily with my eyes. And once again, we see that Jesus in this passage, as he did with anger, shows us that the law exposes our sin, yes, but it also shows us that we cannot hold it. It points us back to Jesus once again. Yes, combat sin, fight sin daily, put it out from you. But no, you cannot do it. There is no amount of goodness or rightness in you that will keep this sin out from you. Jesus, in essence, is pointing us back to himself yet again. He's saying, you need me, you need cross. Later in, in the Gospels, we'll see as, as Jesus has told this parable and his, and, his, and his disciples respond, how can we, how can any be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. And this is what we must know, that in and of ourselves, this is not possible. We cannot keep out anger. We cannot keep out lust. But we are to come to the foot of the cross to bring our burdens, to rest them upon him, to be reconciled to God, to be reconciled to one another. I think this is a hard thing for us. It is a very, very hard thing for us because Many of us will hear the words of Jesus and will point the finger to all those around us. We'll point the fingers to our spouses. And yet we must understand that Jesus is talking to us that we are the ones to be convicted. That if we have anger, we have murdered. That if we have lust, we have committed adultery. Will you hear the words of Jesus? Will you heed his warning? I think these, these the, the Sermon on the Mount is so beautiful because it is so poignant that it not only speaks to the, the people of Jesus' day, but it speaks to us that we still have the same problems. This is the beautiful part about scripture that it is easy for us to hear the words but will we put the words into action? Or will we 
keep our heads down, will we tell ourselves that it's everyone else's fault, that it's everyone else's problem? Or will we take severe, drastic actions? Will we gouge out our eyes? Will we cut off our hands? The reality, I think, is the Christian life, if you reflect it all in yourself, I know as I reflect in me, that it's easy to speak of piousness, it is easy to speak and play at righteousness. But it is very hard to take drastic action to put sin out from yourself. And this is what Jesus calls us to. Not mere lip service, not mere self-gratification, self-righteousness, self-glorification. We are not to put ourselves up on a pedestal and show the world how good we look. We're not to disguise ourselves by saying to ourselves, I, I'm, I'm asking for forgiveness of sin, but I want to take no part in actually putting this sin out from me. I think it is a lost art of confession. We no longer go to our brothers and sisters and more and ask for accountability, would you help me keep this sin out? Because when the moment we do that, we make it real. It's no longer personal. This notion of this personal relationship with God, it's just me and God, is not a biblical one. Yes, it has its place. But we are called to come into each other's lives, to keep each other accountable, to take drastic actions, to cut sin off. We have been talking a lot about sin We've been looking at it on Wednesday nights. We've been looking at it in our Sunday school, the account of Genesis. The, the problem of sin is real for us. What will we do to remove it? Jesus here calls us to put it out from us severely. It is a hard thing to do. But we must be Cut sin off from us. To pluck it out as we would pluck out an eye. That may be a, a down note to end on, but I think it's a good note for us to end on. To know that we must be putting sin to death. We must be continually conforming to the image of our Savior. This is something that I pray for us a lot, that we would be conformed to his image. But what does that really mean, to be conformed to the image of Christ? Is it just mere words? Or do we really want to reflect God? Do we really want to honor Him and glorify Him? For me, as I've been going through this, this series, particularly in the Beatitudes and the, and the Sermon on the Mount, this becomes so poignant. Because we could, we could stop at this point and we could go through every of all the commandments and Jesus doesn't do this for us. But we very well could. Stealing, murder, covetousness. And he calls us to put all these things out from ourselves. How will we do this? How will we as the body of Christ at Lakewood Presbyterian Church do this? How will we reflect the image of Christ to this city? How will we glorify God through not just our outward external actions, but through our thoughts, but through our deeds, through the way we treat each other, through the way we treat our family, through all our relationships. Church is not a two-day-a-week deal. 
It is a life deal. It is a life-changing, life-conforming event. Are you fighting against this? The reality is that we all do. We all fight against this. We have to give up the fight and pursue righteousness. To pursue sinlessness. This is my hope. This is my prayer. That God would work this in us. That to be conformed to the image of Christ would not be mere words. But it would be the goal of our hearts. The longing of our very selves. Brothers and sisters, we must put sin to death. We must put it far from us. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, we've come today and we looked at the heart of adultery, that the sin of adultery takes root in our hearts before it ever becomes the act. And Lord, this is true of all sins, of divorce, or excuse me, of, of anger, of covetousness, of murder, of stealing, of lying, of bearing false witness. Lord, we know that Jesus in this text is calling us to be more than ourselves, more than we can ever be. Apart from him. So we come before you and we fully admit that while the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Would you come and work in us that which is good, that which is pleasing to you? Would you even as David has has, has written in the Psalms, create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in us, we pray. In Jesus' most holy name.